everyone. It's good to be here after a couple of weeks away. Um, not being sent to exile like Mark in Australia, but shorter trips, thankfully. And uh, actually, I was in Prague last weekend when Natasha did the Dancy Family Missionary Update. And apparently, it was really good. So I think I'll leave every time it's our turn. I think it'll be a, a good plan because she's much better at it than I am. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you've ever been caught up in a riot. Um, I have sort of. I was many years ago in um, Bangladesh with an ambassador's mission trip, and we were staying in a sort of hostel-type accommodation, and we heard this big noise coming along the street, and there was people protesting and rioting about something or other. We, we had no idea what. But we thought it was a good idea to go and stand on the roof because it was a flat roof and, and see this sort of procession go by, and you kind of have that feeling of wonder what will happen and will there be fights and all the rest of it. And as we were looking there, the police set off tear gas. And that was the end of our spectating, because once that gets in your eyes, it's all over. It's a terrible feeling. But being in a riot is not a lot of fun. And this morning's passage is a little bit about a riot, a great uproar, but then a little bit about great encouragement that Paul gives as he moves on from Ephesus. So we're carrying on our series with in Acts, and as Chris said, yes, go listen to Darren's sermon if you haven't heard it about what happens previously in Ephesus, because we've seen the amazing story of, of those dramatic confrontations between the spiritual forces of darkness and the gospel going out, the great power that God was doing great miracles through Paul, and it led to that thing of the, de- the demon-possessed man beating up the sons of the high priest, and then this sort of event where lots of magic books and all the rest of it was burned as people turned to the Lord and suddenly got serious with God. And so right after this, verse 21, um, we read that Paul, after that event, had probably decided, well, now's the time for me to move on. And we read that he wants to get out to Rome. He's always got somewhere new in mind. But he also wanted to go back through Macedonia or Macedonia. That's probably closer to the Greek, Chris, and Achaia. So we, but I'm going I'm to look at 21 and 22 or mention them a little bit more in the great encouragement part. We're going to start with the great uproar. So that's what we're going to look at first, verses 23 to the end of chapter 19, where we have this riot in Ephesus, as the NIV titles it, but I've called it a, a great uproar. So what is going on there? Um, what I'd like to do is kind of unpack why there's this great riot, what's going on behind it, and then... Do the same for the great encouragement, then try and bring it together and see how we can apply it to us here this morning in Gloucester, in Abbey Church. So why is there this great uproar? Well, first off, we see that the uproar is a reaction to the gospel. If Paul had not been preaching, there would not be a riot. And last week, as I said, we saw how that was a dramatic event at that time of the burning of the magic books and everything that happened there. But what we see is that the gospel is radically affecting the way people live. It's challenging every aspect of their lives. They're burning their magic books, things that were part and parcel of their life. I can remember uh, in Spain, we were part of a church there, and there was an elder, older couple who came to the Lord. They were very good Catholics, and, and the wife, she had her wall covered with statues and pictures of saints and the Virgin Mary, which was her attempt to reach God through her understanding of what it meant to be a good Catholic. And it was literally covered everywhere, little statues, little saints. 
And as she grew in the Lord, she began to realize there was something wrong with that picture compared to her free access, as we've heard about this morning, to God through Christ. And they came to the point where she threw them all in the bin, much to her family's horror and dismay. How could she do that to these precious little statues? But she threw them all in the bin. The gospel was reaching down and impacting her life in a deep way, challenging every part of her culture. And this is what we're seeing happening here. There's a reaction, not just now against the magic, but in this passage we're seeing that the reaction is happening even to Artemis, this great goddess of the Ephesians. Now, Artemis was the goddess of fertility, and sometimes she's called Diana because that was the Roman version, but they're not identical. And she was one of the most widely followed goddesses in the whole Greco-Roman world at that time. In Asia Minor, the, the province where Ephesus is located, you could, the, the archaeologists have uncovered over 30 shrines to her uh, scattered around. So she was uh, quite an important figure. In fact, they tell us that the Ephesian temple, or the temple in Ephesus, was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. It was bigger, the platform where it stood was bigger in dimensions than a football pitch, and the building itself wasn't much smaller. So it was a huge, enormous building, the biggest in the Greek world at that time. And yet the gospel, as it goes out in Ephesus and in the region, is having an impact even on this powerful religious center. And so as we read in the story, this chap Demetrius comes along, the silversmith who makes little figurines of Artemis, uh, gathers together the people who also work in those kind of trades and says, look, this can't be, we can't let this go past. This fellow Paul is messing about our livelihood. And just listen to the complaint he says. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. The gospel is having an impact on society. It's challenging everything. So people are no longer coming along and buying his little figurines. That's what's upset Demetrius. People are not going to the temple and worshipping. That's even more upsetting to him. I mean, it sounds like he's mainly worried about the money, but he's also quite clever, and so he throws in the religious dimension. He says there's danger that not only that our trade will lose its good name, verse 27, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. That amazing, huge building, impressive thing that everyone came to worship Artemis from all over the world. And it says that the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. There was a real challenge by the gospel to every area, social, religious, financial. People were not coming and worshiping at the temple. People were not buying these statues. And this was deeply upsetting to Demetrius and his fellow workmen. And it's interesting that what we read in verse 23 is actually that Luke uses a, a curious expression that he's quite fond of. He says, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. He calls Christianity the way. Why does he call it that? He's not presenting it as a religion. He's not presenting it as a philosophy. He's not presenting it as a set of beliefs. He's presenting it by using that word as a whole way of life. And he uses that expression several times throughout Acts. I've not put all of them up there. But you'll see that the way is something you belong to. It's not just a set of beliefs. It's the way of salvation, as the demonized 
slave girl in, in Acts 16 tells, these men are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. It's the way of the Lord. It's the way that God wants us to walk, walk in. Acts 18, in, in a couple of verses there. And we see this reaction first by the Jews in verse 9 of chapter 19, where we looked at last week. Some of them became obstinate, we read, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. This way of living. They didn't like it. And now the Gentiles are saying, hang on a minute, this way of living is starting to mess us about too. It's affecting our trade. It's affecting who we worship. It's not just simply a set of propositions. Joining the way is a way of life. And that was what was having the impact. And so we see that where there's real impact, there's a reaction against it. And that is the beginning of this riot or this great uproar. Because people are upset about being challenged in the deepest, at the deepest level. So there's a reaction against the gospel. But as we go on in the story, this reaction moves to rage against the gospel. As Demetrius begins to say, look, this fellow Paul is not only affecting our pockets, but he's also making Artemis seem nobody. They, we read verse 28, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting. The ESV puts it as they were enraged. The, the, The gospel was going so deep into the culture that there was a reaction against it of rage because people were being affected at at the level of their beliefs and their livelihood. And so there's mass confusion in the whole city. No doubt as the workmen begin chanting this, the whole city gets involved and there's uproar everywhere. Soon the whole city, in verse 29 we read, was in uproar. And so there's a a a sort of reaction of rage that that is, is going against the gospel because of the impact it's had. And we even read there's, you know, these two poor guys, Gaius and Aristarchus, get seized by the mob, dragged along to the theater. Now, we shouldn't think of a a modern-day theater where you go watch Shakespeare. This was an open-air theater that seated more than 25,000 people. So this was a big public forum where they would meet as a city to make their decisions. And there, there's a sort of mass movement to the public theater to deal with what's going on against what has been happening. And Paul, we read in verse 30, wants to go in and speak to them, but wisely, the, the other disciples wouldn't let him. And it even tells us that some of the officials who were friends of Paul says, you know, don't you dare go in there. That'll be the end of you. So this is, this is no longer just a group of guys complaining. This is now a full-on riot, rage against the gospel. And really, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Darren reminded us last week, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, has this memory in his mind, a huge riot taking place against the gospel. Why? Because the devil is not happy when the gospel has an impact. He stirs people up against us. There's a pushback, a rage that we can't understand when we see, for example, today, modern-day atheists, for example, being so against Christianity with no real rational arguments, but just absolutely hating it. Why? Because there's a hidden battle that we don't see often. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is something deeper going on when the gospel has an impact. 
And Satan does not like it. He pushes back. He stirs people up. It's no longer just a reaction. It's rage. Satan hates it when the gospel has an impact. And so he stirs things up. So now there's this full-blown riot going on. And what do we have? Well, we have a group gathered together in resistance to the gospel. That's my third R for the morning. Resistance to the gospel. It says, the assembly was in confusion, verse 32. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. And then we read about this Jewish bloke called Alexander who's trying to explain And it seems likely that he was trying to explain, actually, we're not a part of this. This is all about Paul. He's left us. But of course, in the minds of the Ephesians, Paul and the Jews were all the same thing. And so just seeing a Jew standing there leads to this amazing shout of, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Can you imagine that? We've had two minutes of exalting God here this morning in prayer. Well, these guys were at it for two hours, shouting that one chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I imagine it was a bit like for England yesterday in in Wales. They probably felt the same as Paul and his companions as they were faced with this wave of hostility. A lot of misguided fervor in the world. But let's not go there. Interestingly, Paul calls this gathering, it's the same word that's normally translated church. This was people gathered together for one purpose. Although at the beginning they didn't know what it was. But quickly it becomes one purpose. To oppose the way and to hold up the greatness of Artemis. This was, if you like, the church of Artemis gathered together to say, this is the true God. This is who we worship and we're not having any of that gospel nonsense. They were moved by fervor and misguided zeal. And so they chant this chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours. Now, she isn't, so I'm going to get rid of that. But the the town clerk has to come in and calm things down. And and verse 35 says, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? These facts are undeniable. So you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. It's interesting that as we see what that religion was about, we realize how misguided it was. They essentially worship a block of stone that fell from heaven. Uh, The scholars tell us that by the time of Paul, the block of stone didn't even exist anymore. It would probably been destroyed in a previous um, time, and they'd built a new temple, and now they just had a wooden statue. That was who they worshipped. That was who they were chanting to for two hours, a wooden statue of the goddess Artemis. And of course, the the town clerk wants to calm things down because if he doesn't, then the Romans would send the soldiers in and sort them out in their Roman way. But this is a gathering. This is a church dedicated to resisting the gospel and promoting the false god, Artemis. There is resistance to the gospel. And in fact, we know that the worship of Artemis carried long into the third century. So Paul's visit to Ephesus and establishing the church wasn't the end of Artemis of the Ephesians. There was a real pushback by these people. So we've seen this great uproar, reaction to the gospel, then a rage against the gospel inspired by the enemy who doesn't like it when the gospel has impact, and now resistance to the gospel, promoting the false god Artemis. 
we're going to return to this in a minute and try and bring out some lessons for us at Abbey Church. But let's look at what follows this great riot. So we read at the end, uh, the clerk says, as it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting, carries on and and then dismisses the the assembly. After he said this, he dismissed the church of Artemis, the assembly. And verse t- chapter 20, verse 1, says, When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So now we're looking at the great encouragement that follows the great uproar. And what is that all about? Well, first, Paul is strengthening the churches. Now we saw back in verse 21 that Paul always has a new field in mind. He's never content with just going where he's gone before. He always wants to go somewhere new. And that's usually the aspect of Paul we pick up on the most. But Paul's concern to reach new fields is always matched by his concern for where he's already been. And so we see him going, if you like, on a mini tour, traveling through that area, speaking many words of encouragement, we read in verse 2, to the people, and then finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. So this is a pattern that I think is often ignored in Acts. We tend to focus on where the gospel goes out from, as we read in Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But Paul always visits and revisits. He goes somewhere and revisits. In, in my kind of DIY mode at the moment, our house is a complete mess because we've had the kitchen walls being done and now we've got to paint them in a few days. Unfortunately for me, you can't just stick on one layer of paint and off you go. You've got to do those annoying things like primer or whatever you call it, undercoat, and then two or three layers before it gets done properly. That's not what I wanted to hear when I was, uh, you know, began to paint the house and Andrew and a few of you were there helping when we were doing the upstairs. You can't just do one lick of paint, job's done. Paul is a good painter in that sense. He puts down one layer, and we're going to see this. This is a a map, and I think this is a good point just to review Paul's three journeys to date because it shows us this pattern of Paul visiting and revisiting. So this is his first missionary journey, and that's his first layer of paint. And as he's on that missionary journey, when he gets to the end of it, you could see, I don't know if this little clicky thing, That's where he finishes. He could have just bombed around the corner there, but he said, nope, we're going back and we're going to visit everyone again. So he gives another layer of paint. Then why do you think Paul set off on a second missionary journey? Was it a new field? Well, Acts 15 tells us why he went. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And he went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening The churches, that was one of his main motivations, not somewhere new. So he's giving him another lick of paint. And I don't know if you can see it, but it is progressively getting darker. So just in case you're wondering what's going on there. And of course, on his second journey, which are the arrows there, he then, we remember the vision from Macedonia. He wasn't allowed to preach in Asia, so he didn't visit Ephesus. He starts giving a lick of paint up top, and he works his way down into Athens and Corinth. And then he sails home. Oh, he stops off Ephesus to test the colors, see how it's going. He says, I'll be back. And then why does he go on his third missionary journey? Acts 18. After spending some time in Antioch, which if you remember is his home church, Paul sets out from there and traveled from place to place 
throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. He's given this a jolly good lick of paint by now. And this is where we pick up the story in Acts 19, where he comes to Ephesus after he'd done his color test of the previous visit and says, right, I'm here for two years. So he got all the, all the painting he needed to in that, that visit. And what do we read in these few verses? Well, he wants to get to Jerusalem. So from Ephesus, somewhere in there, that's the way to Jerusalem. But he says, nope, I'm going up through Macedonia and on in there. So he gives yet another visit there. And then interest and gets down again into Corinth, where it says he's, he finally arrived in Greece, which is Achaia, in other words, and stayed three months. So now he's staying three months in Corinth. And verse three, uh, sorry, verse, yeah, verse three, we read that he was planning to set sail from there back to Syria. But what happens? There's a plot against him. And so what does he do? Well, he goes back through Macedonia, up there. And so by the end of these three journeys, and you'll get the final installment next week, he's given the full color, if you like. He's finally got the picture how it should be. He's not just visited once and said, right, I'm off out of here. He is always concerned for the churches he plants. That's why we have half the New Testament, because he writes letters. He sends people. And we're going to see that in a minute. So Paul thoroughly cared for the areas he'd been. So there's a New Testament pattern of how does the gospel grow? It's not just vroom. There's consolidation as well. New churches are planted. Existing churches are strengthened. That's a New Testament pattern of growth and something we need to keep in mind as a church. And I want to get to that in a minute. Now, when we read this, it seems like Paul was doing an awful lot. And we probably think, well, that's Paul. That's great for him. That's not us. But just look at actually how he was doing this, verses 4 to 6. Yes, he was strengthening the churches, but he was doing it through people who served on teams. Look at the list of names that Chris enjoyed reading a few minutes ago. He was accompanied by all these different people. Let's go back to our map. He was accompanied by this guy, Sopater, I don't know how you say his name, son of Phyrus from Berea. Can you see the tiny red dot up there? He was accompanied by Aristarchus and Segundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, back towards the other area on the far right. Also Timothy, and we know Timothy was from Lystra. You can read about that in Acts 16. Then there were two men from the province of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. We don't, it doesn't say where, but we can guess maybe Ephesus. And then if you look, if you remember, we've already read about Aristarchus once already, and Gaius, his traveling companion, from Macedonia. So maybe Gaius was from Philippi. That's another city he's visited. Think about, uh, in, as it says, this is a we passage as we're coming into there that Morris reminded us a few weeks ago. When you read, we did this or this happened to us, that means that Luke is probably present at this time. And Luke, so the early church tells us, was from Antioch. Paul himself, he was from Tarsus. And then remember, his first companion was Barnabas, who was from Cyprus. His second companion was Silas from Jerusalem. And I think, as I was looking at this, it gives you a picture of everywhere Paul traveled, he roped in people to his mission. He didn't just plant a church and say, right, have a nice little time there. He said, no, you guys are on mission with me. And so he had a multicultural team reaching many different areas of 
that known world. And so by the time he's done his three journeys, that's why he's ready to say to the Romans in chapter 15, I'm ready to come with you. Why? Because I want to have a good visit with you. Yes, but I want you to send me on to Spain, which is off the map. So Paul is always about mission. And these teams are always about two things, about strengthening the existing church and about planting new churches. And you can read it time and time again as he sends them to different places. He's not a one-man show. And that was something of the encouragement I had last weekend being in Prague. So we had teams from all over Europe coming together for an evangelistic event. It was a, a football tournament. And it was great to meet the leaders from all the different countries as well as see the people they'd brought to be reached with the gospel. It was a multicultural event. And it was a pattern, if it was a picture, if you like, of Paul's mission team. Now, we may be thinking, how does that apply to us in Abbey Church? We're not going to have a riot like we did in Ephesus, hopefully, with a reaction to the gospel. And maybe we're thinking, well, we're, we're not a multicultural group in this room, although we do have our Welshman who will be very making sure we all remember that over tea and coffee today. But how does this apply to us here in Abbey Church? How do those things we've seen about the great riot, how does this reaction to the gospel, the rage, the resistance, how does that play out here? And how do we think about strengthening the churches and serving in teams? Well, I, th I think Abbey and Gloucester is not so different from Ephesus after all. We see a reaction to the gospel. We live now in a society where there is a rage against the gospel. As I said before, you only have to look at or read the books of militant atheists like Richard Dawkins and see that there's a hatred for the gospel. You look in the media, there's continual vilification of Christians. So we don't live in, in a situation so different from Ephesus. But I think the deeper question for us as church and individuals, which I think Liz has already touched on and Mark has already touched on, is are we having an impact for the gospel here in Abbey Church, in Abbey Mead, Abbey Dale? Are we showing the others a way of life that has an impact at every level of culture? And I was, as I was, when I was in Prague last week, this is obviously uh, book recommendation week, somebody gave me this book, which is uh, Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice, who does the Christianity Explored series. So I, I was reading over the last few days, and it's, it's very helpful and very challenging, so you can add that to your book list along with the one Liz recommended. As long as books about evangelism don't become like books about prayer, where you read them but never get to the praying, or you read this and never get to the evangelizing. But this is very helpful. And I like the way he starts because he says most books about evangelism will start about you know, how, how to do evangelism, what's the message. But his first, first or second chapter is essentially saying, if you're going to evangelize, you're going to get hurt, and it's not fun. And he ex shares his experience of growing up sharing his faith in a school and continually being ridiculed. He says, if you're going to talk about Jesus, you're going to get hurt. Because today's society, it's not just apathy we face, he says, but it's antipathy. People are enraged by the gospel. And he uses a phrase, he says, there's a pain line we have to cross if we want to share the gospel. And it's a pain line we don't want to cross often. Because when we share the gospel, we don't know the reaction. It could be we're rejected. It could be we lose a friendship. It could be that we're made fun of. And so we tend to stay away from that. And he sums it up 
like this. There's hostility and hunger. That's what you'll find as you tell others about Jesus. And we have to realize that we will face hostility, even in modern, civilized Britain. But there's also hunger. And I think that's the encouraging part. There is hunger there that we perhaps think isn't. I, I did a Google search just to show you that Gloucester is not so different from Ephesus. There are more than 20 different psychics or mediums offering their services in Gloucestershire. I mean, that sounds like Ephesus to me. You, there's, there's quite a lot of magic books that could be burned here in Gloucester if we, if we put our minds to it. But people are searching. Hopefully Google search won't be throwing that up at me for the next few months as it does. But people are, are searching. They're hungry. And we have to be the ones to share. But we don't because we don't want to cross that pain line. And I speak for myself, and I think Liz was saying that very honestly. We don't like to step across that line where we know we'll get a bit of pushback. We don't know if it'll be hunger or rejection that we receive. And we also have to invest time because society has changed. We don't have a biblical basis anymore in our country. We're starting from scratch. There's groundwork to do, which is why we've been thinking about the four R's and why we're going to have a series on those four R's. Relationship. Being in relationship with non-Christians. Respect. Showing them that the, that the Christian life is worthy of respect. Relevance, they can see how the gospel actually is relevant to their lives, their situations. And a response, bringing them to know Christ. And I think the other lesson we can take from this is that we're in a spiritual battle. Behind that reaction, behind that rage, behind that resistance is a spiritual battle. And that's why Paul spends most of chapter 6 of the letter to the Ephesians which he'd written after this experience, to say, put on the spiritual armor. You're in a battle. Pray. Pray above all things. And I like that prayer that Liz gave us of open, open an opportunity, open a door, open my mouth. That's the, the hardest one, I think. But that's what we need to be doing, putting on the armor and praying so that we are ready to share the gospel. And so I suppose that the question I'm asking is, for us as a church, are we willing for a little bit of uproar? We're not going to have the great uproar of Ephesus. But are we willing for that little bit of pain in our lives as we step out and share the gospel? So great uproar. Well, are we willing for a little bit of uproar? Great encouragement. And this, I think, speaks to us as a church, that our, that our church needs to be about working as a team Yes, to build up this church, Abbey Church, this congregation, this expression of the body of Christ into maturity. That should be our desire coming here this morning. Yes, to worship the Lord, that's primary, but also to build one another up. We're here to build one another up into maturity. That should be my heart for you, your heart for me. Regardless of our differences of maybe some theological things or the fact that I support Liverpool and you support Man United. You know, our, that's, a, that's a deal breaker sometimes. But our, our desire, our goal should be building one another up to maturity. That's what I need to be praying for, working for, desiring for you and you for me. So are we doing that as a team? Because as, as Paul didn't do that by himself. He had a team. And then are we working as a team to reach our community? I think those two priorities should govern everything we do. 
And I think it's worth saying service in the church is not about filling a rota. It's each person playing their part to build up the church to maturity. Outreach in the church is not about events, although as Mark said, they're a good catalyst and we do want to see fruit for them and they're important. But that's not what outreach is about. Outreach is about you and me working together to be willing to cross that pain line and say, I'm going to share. I'm going to be a light to my neighbors, to my work colleagues, to my friends. So if we want to see great encouragement, we need to work together to grow the church and reach our community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that as we've already thought about this morning, you have given us your Holy Spirit to enable us to be your witnesses. And Lord, as we think about how we want to reach our community for you, we pray that you would help us individually and as a church be able to cross that, that line of discomfort and share our faith. And we pray that you would help us to build one another up in love, to have that desire to see us grow to maturity in Christ. And so, Lord, we, we commit ourselves to you as your church here that is facing a church out there that resists the gospel, that is against the gospel. Give us that courage and boldness. And, Lord, help us win that spiritual battle in prayer and with your armor that you've given us. So we, we pray, Lord, that just as that crowd was shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, Lord, that we would be a church that proclaims loudly how great you are, Lord Jesus. And we've done that this morning in song, but we want to do it outside in our community. Lord Jesus, you are great. You are greatly to be exalted. Great is our God. So we worship you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.